0: This is a recording made in the chapel of the opened book, and this is number four of the series entitled, What is Man? It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together, and those of you who are listening to this recording, if you care to join us, will you switch off for a little while while we read together 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The subject before us, during this present series, is an endeavour to answer from the scripture the question posed in Psalm 8, what is man? We have already devoted some time in these studies to the other vast and tremendous question, who and what is God? We have considered the being and nature of God as far as we were able to trace it in the teaching of the Word, but we also realised that God in the Scriptures is always there in relation to man and the purpose of the ages. He, The question of the nature of God as he is in himself, unconditioned, absolute, beyond the range of the limitations of time and space, They enter into philosophic arguments, but the Bible knows nothing of them. And so we we immediately were conscious, having touched upon the question of the being of God, we must immediately associate it with the nature and being of man. Otherwise, the Bible will still be a closed book to us. I suppose, in the ordinary way, if we ask the question of another, uh, if you're going to start the study of the book of Genesis, Where would you begin? Well, obviously, you say Genesis 1. Uh, But uh, some of you know, and I believe some of you have made a little fun of the idea that if I tell you I'm going to start with Genesis 1, you know full well we're going to turn somewhere else first, don't you? Uh, Indeed, if you haven't said so, when my daughters were members of this congregation, they reminded me of it many times. That was a characteristic. And yet I think there's a truth in it. You start reading Genesis 1 and you get floundering about with the question of evolution and all the arguments that are put forward about the impossibility of believing the six days creation and so on. But supposing you read the divine comment in Sarve eight, where the question is put what is man? It's associated with the glory of the Lord which is above the heavens. It's killing the enemy and the avenger. It's out of the mouth of babes and sucklings. It's a mystery being revealed. And, without going into details, the peculiar title with which the psalm ends, Al-Mus-Laben, which you find over the ninth psalm by mistake, is interpreted by the Septuagint as the secrets of the sun. And that's what it means. So that you you do not understand the story by merely looking at Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and that's the end of it. That is there in its right place. But it's focusing attention upon someone who was yet to come. Adam is of interest to us because he was a figure of him that was to come. Look at this chapter we've read together in 1 Corinthians 15. Take Adam from it and the whole structure falls to pieces. A person who glibly says, well, it doesn't matter whether they believe Genesis 1 and 2 or not, as long as we believe the simple gospel. Friends, there's no simple gospel that sets aside Genesis 1. Because Adam enters into the story, and it's the backbone of Romans chapter 5, even as it is of 1 Corinthians 15. And so I ask you to bear in mind that we have here in this Bible not a collection of texts to save a poor preacher the difficulty of finding a subject. It's a book revealing a purpose. It's purposely limited. It only goes back a few thousand years, whereas as evidence that the creation goes back millions of ages. It doesn't matter how far. God is concerned not with teaching us astronomy or geology, but teaching us a purpose that was partly veiled and only suggested that long before man was put upon the earth, there was a fall among the angels, and so we, we begin to learn the reason why Psalm 8 says "And he was made a little lower than the angels. Why connect him with the angels? Because here we have God's final answer, the way in which through this man and the one that he foreshadowed, he will bring his purpose to its glorious consummation. Now it sounds so easy to say that, doesn't it? But it isn't. But unless we've got something to hold on to, we shall spend so much time in going up Different avenues and not reach, as it were, the goal. Now we turn back to the book of Genesis. We will look at the uh, first uh, chapter, first two chapters now after having said that. Uh, But you will see, I think, there is a purpose in that suggestion. You remember that in the first reference to Adam, and uh, I remind you that the word Adam comes in verse 26 although in our version it's disguised, when it says, and God said, let us make man in our image. It's the word Adam. Uh, The next thing that I asked you to consider was the meaning of the name of Adam, and so many have come to the conclusion that it means somebody who was taken out of the red earth. Uh, Well, it's well sometimes to ask the question again, because I drew your attention that every other name in the context is described in the very verse. Eve is called Eve because it means living. Cain is called Cain because I have gotten. Seth is called Seth because I have received or appointed or one has been set. Well, it's strange that they're all described and Adam is left out in the blue. So I drew your attention that the very self-same letters that form the word Adam enter into the word likeness, demus. And the true meaning of Adam is not the red earth, but he was the likeness. He was made in the likeness of him who is the image of the invisible God, as we get in the New Testament. Well, now the second chapter comes to the creation of the same man, but looks at it from another angle. In the first chapter, we have this man, rather the picture of Christ and the purpose. Let him have dominion. And you remember, uh, Sarbate, uh, which speaks about this dominion, quotes, the beast of the field, the cattle, but the moment you come to the New Testament comment, it's principality and power, throne and dominion, it's universal except him that put all things under him. That's what you want to remember, that he was foreshadowing. Not merely the limited dominion of that man, but what that dominion foreshadowed. When we come to the second chapter, we have the actual making, if we can say, use that term, of the man. We have, uh, not only so, but we have the fact that he was here on probation, because in this second chapter, we have a reference to the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then we have the emphasis upon the fact that this man had an intelligence, so much so that he could call animals by distinctive names. And then finally in this chapter, we have a stress upon family relationships because here marriage is instituted. Now we sha not be able to deal with all those phases uh, very uh, uh, fully, uh, but we keep them in front of us and do the best we can in our limited time. Shall we now look at this uh, verse which past- we partly touched upon last time? Genesis 2. Verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. I won't go over all that we saw last time. You do remember that out of the dust of the ground comes everything that constitutes the basis of our bodies and the upkeep of our lives. Just a few inches of the surface of the earth contains all the elements that go to make up the human body. And um, in passing... Uh, this this will be not explained, only just thrown in. But when you read the Apostle Paul saying he was, it's a time for my departure has come, and you know that the Greek word departure is the word analysis, pure and simple. And when you read in Genesis three these words, for out of it was thou taken, oh, uh, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it thou wast taken, for dust thou art. And unto dust shalt thou return. That's the word analysis. That's what he said. Of course, a good many people will say he meant something else. But by no stretch of imagination can the Greek word analysis mean the return of Christ, although some uh, seek to make it do so. The next thing is this the question of the soul. Well, that's an aggravating subject, and the something to cause a good deal of dissension. The soul has sometimes been given a position that dominates the person, whereas um, instead of man possessing a soul, or instead of man being the only one in the uh, creation of God that is a soul, we discovered last time that it comes three times in chapter 1, that the creeping thing and the the, uh, living creature which we have in chapter 1 is exactly the same word soul disguised in our version Look at verse um, 20, chapter 1, and God said, Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life. Or in verse 21, And God created great whales and every living creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly. There we have, in those words, the living creature. We've got the same word as a living soul. So it's very, very wrong to say that Adam was different from the rest of creation by the fact that he possessed a soul. It doesn't say he possessed a soul, it says here, uh, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, there's the body, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, that is equivalent later on to the word spirit, like we get the body without the spirit is dead, being alone, and man didn't possess, but man became, man became a living soul. And the word soul governs the whole being, it's the whole organised being, body, soul, spirit, as a living man. If you think of the uh, parallel uh, little illustration, a uh, cup of water, the liquid, as you know, is just oxygen and hydrogen in chemical combination. If you resolve the cup of water into its two parts, you say, well there's the oxygen, There's the hybrid. You don't say, and where is the water, and put that somewhere. Just in the same way, there's the body, there's the spirit. When they're combined, living, it's a soul. When they're dead, you don't have to say, to put the soul somewhere, because the soul is the sum of all those parts. Man does not possess a soul, but he is a living soul. And then, of course, there's that other controversial theme, the question of uh, immortality. We read about immortality in 1 Corinthians 15. He says that the resurrection, this mortal, shall put on immortality. But that doesn't satisfy some people. They have to borrow from Plato and the Greek philosophers and introduce into the scripture a term that you never find there. They speak of the immortality of the soul. What do you say? Oh, that is such a truth that God didn't even have to say it. I've heard people tell me that. There are about 400 different occurrences of the word soul in the Scriptures, and God never once said that it was immortal, because everybody believes it. Pagans believe it. Ancient philosophers believe it. Well, you say, is that a proof that it's true? Not necessarily. So we say, we just want to know what God says, and if it doesn't square with what other people think, well, we're sorry, friends, but we would exercise the brilliant spirit and search and see. On this blackboard, I have written in English letters three words. nefesh, which most of you know, is the word translated soul. Nafek, which you may not know, is the verb to breathe. And af is the word for the nostril. And you will see they are, li- they are leaped together by a sort of Use of the same letters. If you could, if you could see this, that the person who was acquainted with the Hebrew as his own language would realize that it's true when it stresses over and over again, everyone that breatheth, breatheth, the living creature that breatheth. It's a strange, it's a strange thing for the breath in the nostrils to confer immortality, isn't it? when on the other hand it's a sea sheep, a man whose breath is in his nostrils. No, Christ is our life, friends. We're not depending upon these other things intruding. Christ is our life. My hope is not because I have an immortal soul that God can't do anything about. My hope is that one day this mortal shall put on immortality. And i also line that up with a statement in 1 Timothy chapter 6, speaking of my Saviour, who is king of kings and lord of lords, who only hath immortality. Now, if you like to think otherwise, that's for your conscience and not mine. Uh, That mine will not permit me to intrude that other thought into the scriptures when I discover that we can speak about a dead soul and a soul uh, thirsting and a soul hungering and turn that soul into a spiritual uh, something which is immortal. It isn't true, not according to the scriptures. Well, now we must look a little bit further. Uh, The question of the probation of this man, the test which we find associated with the tree of life, I think I must defer until we meet together again, because that will come into chapter 3 as well. But the point, I think, is to be remembered uh, that um, this man was put on probation. He was tested. And that's an essential part of it. When you come to read the scriptures, you gather that so far as the angels are concerned, there is no sex, there is no marriage, there is no giving in marriage, there is no parenthood. They are all separate individual creations. But this is a move on the part of God which is very, very different. He has a man who is going to be the father of a people. And he has a family in view and that is very characteristic of the whole teaching of the New Testament. That God is ultimately revealed in the New Testament as the Father and he has a family in heaven and earth in view and so we find it foreshadowed in this man. Of course there are all sorts of problems that arise in the mind. If God, suppose we take our own calling in which we rejoice, which we find written in the epistle to the Ephesians. If you belong to the church of the one body revealed by Paul when he became the prisoner, when the people of Israel went off the scene and were scattered, and the question of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob for the time being was put on the shelf, you know that one of the terms there is that we are blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Well now, why didn't God create us straight off and put us there? He could have done, couldn't he? But he created someone who was not spiritual. Or oh, would you say, you're wrong there. Or oh, no, you say, Adam was spiritual. Because if Adam wasn't spiritual, then there's another thing coming up. A man who is not spiritual cannot die a spiritual death. Can he? If he cannot live a spiritual life, how could he die a spiritual death? But you say, what are you getting at? Well, I read in 1 Corinthians 15, that was not first which is spiritual. No, 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 here that man was only natural or soulical if we could invent the word. Oh yes. So God did not create him spiritual. And he couldn't have enjoyed spiritual blessings that were given to him. And yet he was put on the earth. It looks as though there was a purpose. That God would not have a mere mechanical universe. He would have someone who had learned by experience. And this would be a far greater thing than never having sinned and never having fallen. It would have at last accomplished this. That in the beginning, we might write over the first chapter of Genesis, in the beginning was God. But the end that is in view, and it's written in 1 Corinthians 15, is not that God should be all, but it says that God should be all in all. It's a greater blessing and a greater glory that someone who could say no to God should eventually willingly turn around and say yes, than that the sun, the moon and the stars and all the planets went whirling round forever, for they don't know it poor things, but we do. And so there's a reason why this man was given probation. Of course we can express all sorts of opinions what would have happened if Adam hadn't sinned, and so on? And they, they are speculations, but we can get get very uh, not very far with regard to that. The next thing is there's a light on the relationship of man with God. And when we read uh, these words, um, verse 19, and out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field. And every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them and whatsoever Adam called every living creature that was the name thereof. Well that suggests some form of intelligence to be able to give some sort of name that will be simply not merely a a crude sound. Now one name has persisted from the book of Genesis Uh, when we look at Genesis 3 we read about the serpent. And the word which is there translated serpent is the word Nahesh. And you go forward into the book of Kings, the second book of Kings. If you like to turn to the passage, you'll see uh, in the 18th chapter and the 4th verse that this name, which apparently goes right back to Adam, persisted, was understood by the people. Um, 2 Kings 18 verse 4. Hezekiah is being spoken of. He removed the high places and broke the images and cut down the groves and break in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. For unto those days the children of Israel did burn incense to it and he called it Nahushton. Well that's the word which we have in Genesis 3. The Nachash. Now the word Nachash means something which is brazen. Now, anybody looking for the first time at a snake and calling it brazen, uh, he's put a label on it, friends. And if he did that with all the animals and gave them a a name as characteristic as that, there was intelligence. Well, this brings this, this thought forward then. That there would have been no possibility of a revelation being given by God to man if he hadn't have had some sort of link in that way. It it pains me when I hear language being abused because it's one of the most marvellous gifts that you could imagine. Even now it's a wonder to think that you can sit there and listen to a lot of sounds coming out of my mouth and they're creating in your mind images that I hope I'm intending they shall. I'm speaking of abstract things and you know what I mean. Now don't sit there and worry how you do it, for otherwise it'll upset the whole thing. You'll be like that centipede that was met by the uh, philosophical ant, you remember, and the ant said to the centipede, how do you know which leg to move next? And the poor thing got stuck, you remember. And he stuck there all night, frozen, till the sun came up and he hopped with joy and he said, oh, I don't have to think about it. No, 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 we haven't got to be like that. But it is a wonder. Now that gives us a link with God. And another thing, without assuming anything beyond the expression of the words, you and I can say these words, I am. You do, you say them. Well, that's a a claim of personality. I am. I don't think, as far as I've got any guidance, that a cow standing in a field has ever said I am, or ever could say I am. But poor, puny man, can still say, I am. And so he can understand when it says, he that cometh to God must believe that he is. It's so absolutely essential that there's no need to prove it. And then we get over and over again in the teaching of scripture, we must recognize the figure of analogy. Analogy or proportion. We used to call it proportion at school, but then that goes back almost to antediluvian times so far as I'm concerned now, isn't it? Uh, I used to worry over it, you know, as three is to four, so is something to the answer. Well, it was the small amount and the large amount, but they were analogical. What could be said of one in the small could be said of the other in the large. Well, that's all through Scripture. When we read, as the Scripture says, uh, God says, He that formed the eye, shall he not see? He that planted the ear, shall he not hear? Well, no, we're not going to straight off and say, oh, that means that God has an eye with a pupil and a lens and a retina and an optic nerve. Oh, no, we know that doesn't so. But just the same as we can see by the ordinary means of light, so surely God the Creator can see infinitely beyond all those limitations. And if we can hear, so can he, and so right down the scale. So this introduction of the fact that Adam was given this, opportunity to show that he had a language and he could use it intelligently is a part of the story. The next question is uh, how did he get to know it so quickly? Well, put it this way. Our Lord's first miracle as recorded in John's Gospel was turning water into wine in a few minutes. Well, as an act of creation Every year he turns water into wine and takes 12 months over it. It's a matter of time, it just doesn't matter. And, evidently, man was given as an endowment not only the means of finding his food and walking about, but of using a a few elementary, rudimentary uh, parts of uh, language straight off. Otherwise there would be no possibility of putting that newly created man on the earth and then telling him that he must avoid that particular tree, otherwise it would mean death to himself and to his descendants. And so these things must be accepted so far as we can see. Well then, coming back again for a moment to this next question of the soul, you remember in Hebrews it speaks about him who is the word, who divides asunder soul, and spirit. Do remember that the scripture makes a great distinction between that which is of the soul and that which is of the spirit. Occasionally from this pulpit I can't find anything that is so pointed to uh, follow up something I've said but to quote from Shakespeare. But I should be very, very sad if anybody went away and said that I believe Shakespeare was inspired in the sense that I believe the Apostle Paul was inspired. I put Shakespeare on a great level, but that is to do with the soul. But when I think of the writing of the epistle to the Ephesians or Romans, that has to do with the spirit. And another thing, a person may go to a great Gothic cathedral and be very moved by the architecture and the stained glass windows and the marvellous choir and the organ, and it may go no further than what we call the soul, and there's no regeneration, there's no contact with God there in that sense. It doesn't mean to say that we have no place in our make for the lovely and the beautiful, but we need something far more than that. If ever we're going to be redeemed people and we're going to understand the mind and will of God. So there's soul and spirit. And then you may remember uh, that when the prohibition is enforced in the law of Leviticus, I think perhaps we ought to turn to this passage in case anyone should be uh, wishing it, Leviticus chapter 17 Leviticus chapter 17 reads in verse 10, I think it is. 10 and 11. Verse 10, And whatsoever man there be of the house of Israel, or of the strangers that sojourn among you, that eateth any manner of blood, I will even set my face against that soul that eateth blood, and will cut him off from among his people. Now our version goes on, For the life Now, that's a pity. It's the same word, soul, so let's keep it. For the soul of the flesh is in the blood. Now, you couldn't believe that that meant the spiritual nature of man is in the blood. But it definitely says the soul is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. Oh, you see, if the soul is in the blood, then when blood is shed, it could make an atonement for the soul. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. And when we look further down and read in Isaiah 53, he poured out his soul unto death. Also, we want to keep strictly to the language of Scripture and use it as God uses it and leave the traditional use alone. Otherwise, we should import things into Scripture and it will compel us then to as it were, depart from the simple truth. Let's come back to Genesis 2 and consider another feature. The Lord didn't merely bring Adam and the animal creation that was under him together to see what name he would give it. That's only one thing. There was another reason that wasn't made known to Adam. So we'll go back to verse 18. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helpmate for him. A helpmate. The word has come into our language now as a single word. We speak about a helpmate. And sometimes it's misspelled and spelled to be a helpmate. Well that's good, it has the meaning. But the word is twofold. A help. Now, that's the title given to the woman that was given to the man. A help. It looks as though God knew that man was so constituted that he would not be able to live alone. He needed a help. And there are some good ladies who say, I can believe that's true if I don't believe much else. Well, that's all right. We're in harmony with it. It is not good, he said, for a man to live alone. Now, he said, I will make a help. Now, the word meet, the word meat means equivalence, correspondence, to stand in front of him. As one old writer put it, that, that woman was not taken from the foot of man to be trodden on, or from the head of man to rule him, but from near his heart. All oh, that's good. That's the idea. And if anyone thinks there's any disparity, remember another saying that's been made, that although the man is the head, the woman is the neck that makes him nod yes or say no, you see. Alright, we work work together, as they should be. No conflict. Now then, it's as a help meet for him. The rest of creation was not consulted by God. He made them male and female straight off like that, but not so man. No. He's dealing now with a moral creature. A moral creature. And one of the lessons that comes out of this is But while God is willing and purposes to do something for us, he doesn't always do it until we have a sense of need and seek it. That's often the case with regard to things that God intends you should have. But prayer is brought in so that you shall desire the very thing that God intends to do for you. So we have a stop. He doesn't tell Adam, that it's not good for him to be alone. That's what he's written here. And he doesn't tell Adam, I will make a help meet for you. But he brings before Adam the animals that were under his dominion. And Adam Adam realized that he was a sort of an odd person in creation. Here they were all happily mated, and we have got the remotest idea of what it must have been like in those days. And he stood alone. And then we are told In verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam and he slept and he took one of his ribs. Now, I do remember reading great controversy in the Middle Ages before they practiced anatomy. The theologians maintained that a man had one rib less than a woman. But of course, if you know anything about anatomy, you know that that isn't so. Or if you don't know much about anatomy, you can soon find out by counting. I remember when I sat for my examination in anatomy, the lecturer said, don't forget you're taking your skeleton in with you, will you? Ah, That wasn't complimentary to me, of course, it was just an obvious fact we had. No. But the point is this. This word rib is not the only way in which this word could be translated. Will you turn to Ezekiel chapter 41. This is a long way through the book, I know, but here's the same word. Ezekiel 41, verse 5 and 6. It says in Ezekiel 41, 5, And he measured the wall of the house, six cubits, and the breadth of every side chamber, four cubits, Verse 6, and the side chambers were three, and all the way down you'll read about these side chambers. Side chambers. Little cells. Oh, little cells. That's a modern word, friends. That's all it means, friends. There's no great description given here. But God took a cell from the body of the man and out of it he built the woman. Well, have I got to tell you he's doing that ever since? Only in the first case we have a man who's brought into the world without a human mother and we have a woman brought into the world without a human mother. And then after that, the process went on. So it's not merely a rib, it's a side cell, a small cell that God took and so the sequel. He brought her to the man. And Adam said... This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she should be called woman. Now the word there of course is a translation. She should be called Isha, I-S-H-A, feminine ending, because she was taken out of Ish, which is the word man. And then Moses adds these words. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother. And that's as true today as when it was written. Of course we're living in times when you meet with folks who are nearly driven crazy because they would wish to have the roof over their own head and their own couple of rooms, but they're crowded together. But God never intended that. That's the result of wars and all the other things. But God's method here is that the beginning should be pursued as far as it's humanly possible through life. Therefore should a man leave his father and his mother, and should cleave. The two words sound alike, like that. They unto his flesh, unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And that's emphasised in the New Testament as well as written here. You say, how can they be one flesh? Well, friends, there's one thing I don't pretend to be able to unravel all mysteries. You say it's a mystery. Well, Ephesians chapter five says they shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but he said, I'm speaking about Christ and the church, and he dismisses it. Nevertheless, it should make every one of us, now I'm at the other end of the story now, so I haven't got to be concerned, but it should make every one of us who are contemplating marriage weigh this fact over that it's not merely just an ordinary, everyday transaction that you can take it or leave it. Here's a mystery and a miracle that God intended this union to be so intimate that it could be argued in the New Testament that no man ever hated his own flesh. They should be one flesh. Now here again God is planning that there should be this unity between the pair and their successors, that if that one man fails, they all fail. If that one man succeeds, they all succeed and we know what happened. And the stress in Romans 5 is, As for one man's disobedience, then comes the other one man into the story. But that, of course, is further on. There's another point that I would like to raise here. In verse 23 it says, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And I've heard arguments built upon this, especially in connection with our Saviour. You remember in Luke's Gospel... The risen Christ appeared in the room where his disciples were, and he said, A spirit hath not flesh and bones, as ye see me have. And while they marvelled, he says, Have you anything to eat? And to show them that he was real and living, he had the remnants of a meal that was left, a piece of raw fish and a honeycomb. Now I've heard people argue that the risen Christ had no blood, Because, it says, flesh and bones. But you see, you could have no flesh if you had no blood. And you'd have no bones if you had no blood. And you'd have no nose to breathe oxygen if you had no blood. It reduces it to an absurdity. Because we've come to the conclusion that we must always say flesh and blood, don't we? But the Old Testament says flesh and bones instead. Let me give you another illustration that this is the way in which they speak genesis twenty nine fourteen genesis twenty nine fourteen and Laban said to him, "Surely thou art bone, my bone, and my flesh." We would have said in modern terms, You are my flesh and blood, but they didn't say that they used bone and flesh, or would you turn to two Samuel chapter nineteen 2 Samuel 19, to show you that further on in the book, it's the same. 2 Samuel 19, verse 12 and 13. Uh, Verse 11 says, And King David sent to Zadok and to Abiathar the priest, saying, Speak unto the elders of Judah, saying, Why are ye the last to bring the king back to his house, seeing the speech of all Israel is come to the king? even to his house. Ye are my brethren, ye are my bones and my flesh. And you can go on finding. Adam didn't look at Eve and say, you are a bit anemic. No, oh, no, he simply said the very words that are persisted in, we are one, bone and flesh. So I say it's a mischievous thing to try to introduce, long way in the Bible, in the book of Luke, that when our Saviour adopted the very self-same terms to try to argue, because you might as well say, if it's true that you don't say the word blood there he hadn't got any. it, well then what are you going to say here with regard to Eve and others? I'm not trying to say that in the risen glory there will be flesh and blood. I'm only saying the risen Christ while he was up here on earth still had the nail, nail marks in his hands and his the use of the words were that he himself was there. We are looking forward to be translated to have a body like unto his body of glory. And what that is like, none of us know for none of us have seen. Nobody's recorded it except the glimpse that was given on the Mount of Transfiguration. But that is another story. Well, then we've brought this round to the the, um, end of chapter 2. Before we leave this section of the question what is man we shall have to go back to the test that is recorded in the tree of life and the consequences that flow out of that test in Genesis 3. We We remember all the time that this book is a book of redemption. It wasn't written to explain things in heaven and earth to satisfy the scientist. It was written to bring before us our need of a Saviour, God's provision through the ages, the coming at last of the seed of the woman that shall bruise the serpent's head, and the way in which he fulfills what Adam only was in type. Adam was the first man. Christ is the second man. Adam was the first Adam. Christ is the second Adam. And we've all connected with Adam the first. The Gospel is to deliver you from the bondage of sin and death that's been brought in by the association of man with first Adam by becoming associated by the mercy of God with second. But those things we shall have to leave and pray that God may bless our study this evening. These are not easy studies to take. For one thing, they introduce subjects which could cause a good deal of feeling. Another is that they sometimes are rather involved. Uh, but as they're dealing with our own nature and our own make-up, uh, we go away from this meeting, I trust, realising that it's not the simplest thing to put the question and get the answer. What is man? There's much more to be got out of the Scriptures yet, but that we should have to leave till the next time we meet together.